Hello and welcome to episode 7 of PathPod. This is our weekly installment of PathPod News Edition. This week our host, Dr. Meredith Pittman, talked about renal pathology associated with COVID-19 with Dr. Vanderlyn Kung of Cedar sinai Medical Center and Dr. Evan Farkash of the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Our host, Dr. Pittman, is on Twitter at M-E-R-E-P-I-T-T. Now here's your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Hello, and welcome to PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Unsurprisingly, the news this week continues to revolve around the novel coronavirus and its effects on the global community. In the United States, we have surpassed 80,000 COVID-19 deaths, while both China and South Korea have reported new clusters of infections after several weeks of practically non-existent local transmission of the virus. One unfortunate consequence of the pandemic is that there has been a significant decrease in organ procurement and transplantation, as reported by Dr. Alexandre Lupi of the Paris Transplant Group in The Lancet. In fact, Dr. Lupi reports a more than 50% reduction in deceased donor transplant since late February in both France and the United States, with renal transplants having the steepest decline. This drop-off in kidney transplant occurs at the same time that a subset of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 are experiencing coronavirus-related renal injury. Today, we are lucky enough to have not one, but two renal pathologists joining us to discuss this topic. The first is Dr. Vanderlyn Kung, currently the Renal Pathology Fellow at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Kung, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Hi, thank you. I'm excited to get to talk to you today. So I have asked you to talk specifically about COVID and kidney disease, yeah. but first... I want to take a moment to ask about how you came into pathology, especially for our medical student listeners. When did you first think about pathology as a possible career? Yeah, I, my experience is kind of unique in that um, I think most people don't hear about pathology until a lot later, but um, even as a student in college, I had done a summer research internship and I had um, these two mentors, Paul Bertix and um, Thomas Warner, and um, they were both in pathology and showed me slides. And I just remember being really excited, thinking that it was just really cool to be able to see things. Um, it was really visual. And like how much they were able to figure out just by looking at a really small piece of tissue was really awe-inspiring to me as a, as a college student. Yeah, I think that's so true. Like as pathologists, as, as anatomic pathologists, like what we see on a daily basis is actually really beautiful and interesting yeah. to look at. It's such a visual field. It is. In med school, I liked a lot of things. I ultimately decided on pathology because during my rotation, I felt like the people I interacted with were people that I fit in with. Um, yeah. I liked that they seemed to have pretty long careers, weren't burnt out, were pretty happy people. I think in general, the people in pathology are a little bit more introverted. And I, I liked that about the, the, the general personality. Not necessarily true of everybody, but yeah. I think it's interesting people like that. Uh -huh. um, and then, you know, I, I had done, um, you know, like MSTP training and I thought pathology was a nice place where, where the science and the research part and the medicine intersect. Um, I think getting to see, see the pathology 
you know, it gives you interesting questions that you might not otherwise think of. Um, yeah. so I thought that was a really appealing part of it too. I think that's also really important for our med student listeners. There are a lot of physician scientists, true physician scientists in the field of pathology because mm-hmm. there is that, that window where you can practice medicine and come up with questions and then take those questions directly back to the lab, which is uh, getting to be more and more unique in medicine as everyone just has more responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's almost, it's a luxury to get to be close and literally see, see the pathology with your own eyes. Yeah. So why renal pathology? Yeah. Renal is even more, (laughs) more specific within, really subspecialized within pathology. I think, you know, it's, it's very different than the rest of search path. It's not, you know, cancer versus no cancer. Um, But I think what's really challenging and interesting um, learning it is how much, integration of inter of information it relies on mm-hmm. um, so there's a lot of clinical pathologic correlation that goes into it it's also it also feels like almost reimmersing in in medicine again um, mm. all the diseases that, that affect the kidney um, cancers metabolic disorders heme issues congenital abnormalities autoimmune diseases are huge infections they all have manifestations in the kidney. Um, so I think that's a challenge, but also an exciting part about looking at renal pathology. Yeah. Um, I really like microbiology. So in particular, how infections seem to precede or precipitate a lot of renal pathology is, is really interesting to me. That's great that uh, you've got a whole world in that one little organ. So (laughs) a little workhorse organ. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you found your place. Um, So I know that you have had exposure to at your center, some patients who had COVID-19 and renal injury and that you were able to create some educational material for your own pathology residents. And you've uh, been generous enough to come on today to basically serve as a verbal review article for us about um, coronavirus and kidney injury. And I really appreciate that. So for our listeners, in the last month, there have been several reports in the lay press even about how hospitals were seeing kidney injury and were beginning to worry about how they may have a shortage of dialysis machines because so many patients were going into renal failure. From a clinical perspective, what does a patient with COVID-related renal disease look like? And is this something that is really common or actually a little bit more rare? Like how often are we seeing this? Um, Based on larger case series, it seems like it's very common. Most common just being acute kidney injury, meaning like an increase in serum creatinine. Okay. Um, But also more more serious things. So like blood in the urine, hematuria, protein in the urine, proteinuria, and then even renal failure, meaning um, the kidneys can't function anymore and someone requires hemodialysis. Okay. So those were some of the patients we were reading about like on CNN.com and the New York Times. Was this something that we knew to expect based on experiences before it really hit the U.S., like in China yeah. or in Italy? Yeah. So the, the big case series that have come out of the initial experience in Wuhan 
um, report a lot of renal abnormalities okay. um, in COVID-19 patients. So they, they're reporting 40 to 60% of patients having proteinuria, about 30 to 40 having hematuria, and then 3 to 7% having acute renal failure requiring, requiring dialysis. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so that is, uh, that's a significant percentage of patients requiring dialysis then. Yeah. This is in hospitalized patients. Um, so okay. already patients. ill. Yeah. Okay. Ill enough okay. to be hospitalized. Okay. So the sickest of the sick patients are needing dialysis, which I guess isn't super surprising, but once you have so many sick patients, I can see how there could be a shortage one of the things that's been interesting as I've been reading is that there are so many similarities between this epidemic of this beta coronavirus mm-hmm. and the prior epidemic of the SARS beta coronavirus back in 2003. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the renal injury is actually different is it in that there's more of it this time around with this particular COVID-19. Um, is that true? Yeah, from from what I've seen in the literature too, it seems like with, like you said, the original SARS coronavirus, renal function was, uh, dysfunction was pretty rare. Okay. Um, and it seemed like it was being reported as a part of multi-organ failure. Okay. Um, as a ultimate result of patients who did really poorly had ARDS and eventually died. Okay. Um, and why there is this difference between the original SARS coronavirus and coronavirus 2 is not totally clear structurally. They're supposed to be very similar. Okay. Um, and a lot of people have made inferences about how COVID-19 might cause pathology based on what is already known about how SARS coronavirus causes pathology. Uh-huh. But you know, one, one difference could be that even though they share the same um, functional receptor for entry into our cells, so that's uh-huh. the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 or ACE2 is its receptor, even though they both have this receptor, um, based on structural modeling, we do know that the affinity of the SARS coronavirus 2, its receptor binding domain has a greater affinity for the ACE2 than, than SARS coronavirus. Um, and that's, people have thought that maybe that's the reason why there's, um, you know, greater transmissibility and infectiousness of oh, wow. okay. um, coronavirus 2. Um, so Potentially, that can contribute to differences in tissue tropism, mm-hmm. um, you know, outside of the respiratory tract. But um, I don't think it's understood why there's this difference in renal abnormalities between the two viruses. Okay, so something for further work there. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the clinical. We have a patient in the ICU, so he's already sick. Mm-hmm. and he's got COVID, and he's got proteinuria, and the clinical team decides that they're going to do a biopsy and send it to the path lab. What are you expecting to see on this renal biopsy? Yeah, there are three published um, case reports now, all um, reporting collapsing glomerulopathy okay. in COVID-19 patients with acute renal failure. And what's interesting is it seems like the, the renal failure and proteinuria in some cases are following um, initial respiratory symptoms that may mm-hmm. or may not be that severe. And sometimes it's concomitant with those symptoms. Okay. Um, Remind me what collapsing yeah. glomerulopathy is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, pathology in the glomerulus. Um, glomeruli are these um, 
special collections of capillaries that filter waste out of our blood to produce urine. Mm -hmm. um, and in collapsing glomerulopathy, what happens is the capillary lumina in the glomeruli are no longer patent. So they're okay. collapsed is where that name comes from. Makes sense. Yeah. And then the um, other finding in it is that the podocytes, which are the um, special cells that have these foot processes that wrap around the capillaries of the glomerulus mm -hmm. um, that are important for filtration, um, as well as the cells lining Bowman's capsule, they're hypertrophied, meaning okay. they're really big. Um, they have these um, protein resorption droplets in them. Uh -huh. And then they're also hyperplastic, meaning they're increased in number. So you have okay. something that's called a pseudocrescent. Okay. Um, of these epithelial cells. Okay. Um, and then the other important finding is when you look at the podocytes by um, ultrastructural examinations, like electron microscopy, you see complete podocyte foot process effacement. Um, mm -hmm. the, the foot processes are these um, projections of the podocytes that usually interdigitate and wrap around glomerular capillaries. Uh -huh. And when podocytes get injured, the foot processes can become simplified, um, shortened, and then they're no longer discrete. Okay. So you're talking about both light microscopy and electron mm -hmm. microscopy findings here. Do you use both of those in all of your cases, or is this something that you decide you need electron microscopy in just a subset of your cases? Yeah, that's a cool aspect of renal pathology is that it relies on not just light, but also immunofluorescence and electron microscopy on, um, in most places, all cases. Okay. Um, the immunofluorescence is really helpful for, um, you know, any disease with immune complex deposition, uh -huh. which is very common, like we were saying, with, you know, all the autoimmune and um, malignancy related manifestations in the kidney. Uh -huh. um, and then the electron microscopy is really useful because a lot of kidney pathology has to do with alterations in barrier function in the kidney. So how the glomerular capillaries look, um, how the endothelial cells, how the basement membrane, how the podocytes, all the, all the parts of um, that barrier are functioning, require looking at it at a very high magnification. <laughs> That's very cool. So, okay, so we have collapsing glomerulopathy. So we have these, these capillaries that are no longer patent, they're collapsed, and we've got these podocytes that are injured. Yeah. And this sounds like something that you would have also seen and that we have read about and learned about in medical school in patients who don't have COVID-19. So mm -hmm. pre-pandemic, who, who got this disease? Yeah, it was classically described in young to middle-aged African-American men. Mm -hmm. um, this link with African ancestry has to do with um, allelic variants in this gene called APOL-L1 okay. um, that are increased in frequency in individuals of African descent, particularly in areas where um, African sleeping sickness is endemic. Oh, okay. Um, because trypanosome brucei is common, and these particular allelic variants of APOL-L1 um, confer protection to trypanosome infection. Interesting. So it's thought that that's why they were selected for and in those published reports of collapsing glomerulopathy on biopsies of COVID-19 patients that you mentioned before, did they look at the status of this APOL1 allele in these patients? I should say, so the, the three case reports, one is by um, Peleg and Kudose from um, Colombia, 
University. The mm -hmm. other one's by Chris Larson at Arcana Labs, and the other one is um, by a, a Swiss group, um, mm -hmm. Kiesling et al. And so in all three, the patients they're reporting on are of African ancestry. Okay. And in two of them, they went ahead and did genetic testing to show that um, their patients had the ApoL1 genotypes associated with collapsing glomerulopathy. So it certainly seems like um, having those ApoL1 risk alleles, mm -hmm. which are more common in um, people of African descent and mm -hmm. U.S. African Americans, is a is a um, big component of um, um, causing a genetic predisposition to developing collapsing after COVID-19 infection. Right, right. So it wouldn't, that you don't have to be of African descent to see this. However, these patients having, um, having this would be more susceptible. So yeah. um, particularly talking about the United States, we know that existing health inequalities have caused this to be a, um, yeah. a problem in our African-American communities. And now on top of the pre-existing environmental risk factors from the health inequities of our system, you're telling us that there's a COVID-related renal disease for which these communities may be at risk, even when there isn't an ongoing pandemic. So it really is just a perfect storm for our patients of color to be disproportionately affected by coronavirus. Uh, this is a really important topic, but probably outside of the scope of our discussion today. So let me get back to the question I had asked you. Um, Pre-pandemic, who else would be getting collapsing glomerulopathy? Outside of genetic susceptibility, um, we know about a lot of secondary triggers of collapsing glomerulopathy. Um, mm -hmm. They include infection. Um, particularly viral infections like HIV and parvovirus B19. Um, autoimmune diseases can do it, like lupus, conditions that cause a really severe inflammatory response like hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, um, heme malignancies, medications like the bisphosphonate, um, pomindronate, and hmm. also interferon therapy. Hmm. Um, and then conditions causing acute glomerular ischemia like, like um, thromboses. Okay. And cause glomerular collapse as well. Okay. So you just mentioned infection. So we've got a viral infection in our patient in the ICU and then also inflammatory conditions. And we know that patients with this mm -hmm. COVID-19 are just having rip-roaring cytokine storms and high inflammation. Mm -hmm. So two reasons that you might see collapsing glomerulopathy in these patients. So that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, are there other forms, we've been talking about collapsing glomerulopathy, but are there other forms of kidney injury that are being seen as well? Yes. Um, so there's a post-mortem case series of 26 Chinese patients that had fatal COVID-19 by, by Sue et al. Uh -huh. And they reported identifying microvascular, meaning glomerular capillary and peritubular capillary thrombi in um, a significant percentage of patients in their in their um, case series, so that's thrombotic microangiopathy. Oh, so that's really interesting because the issue of an increased incidence of these thromboembolic events in patients with COVID nineteen has has come up before. And looking at what was reported in the lay press, you could see that there were some reports. The reasons hospitals were worried about running out of these dialysis machines mm -hmm. is that they were literally saying that the dialysis filters were being clogged by patient blood clots. Mm -hmm. Does this report 
um, by Sue at all of this thrombotic microangiopathy yeah. relate at all to the reports we've seen of like blood clots in the skin, deep venous thrombosis, dialysis filter clots, all of those same things? Yeah, it could be the it could be that that same coagulopathic state is is contributing to the thrombotic microangiopathy. The differential for thrombotic microangiopathy is really broad, but one of the things on that differential is interferon stimulation. So possibly that cytokine storm that we were talking about triggered okay. by SARS coronavirus two infection is driving the coagulopathic state that you're you're describing renal thrombotic microangiopathy, and also collapsing glomerulopathy. Interesting. Okay, so we've got, we've got patients who are just in acute renal failure. We've got patients who have collapsing glomerulopathy, and then we've got patients with this thrombotic microangiopathy. Yeah. Um, so all sorts of kidney injury that we can see in these patients who are coming in with COVID-19. Dr. Kung, thank you for guiding us through some clinical and pathologic findings of renal injury in COVID-19 patients. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to talk to you. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you too. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your week and um, good luck with the remaining time in your fellowship. Thank you. Next, we have Dr. Evan Farkash, an assistant professor of pathology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Dr. Farkash recently published a report on the ultrastructural evidence for direct renal infection with SARS-CoV-2 in the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology. Dr. Farkash, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure to be on. First of all, I want to let our listeners know that this report is from an autopsy of a single patient with COVID-19. How did you become involved in this case? Well, I'm a medical renal pathologist by training, and one of the complications of COVID is kidney dysfunction. Um, this ranges from mild proteinuria or rising creatinine in patients that have mild COVID disease all the way up to dialysis-dependent renal failure in about 8 to 10% of the patients in the intensive care setting. Okay. Uh, and that's a bad prognostic marker, and those patients have a really high risk of death if they get all the way to kidney failure. There's several mechanisms for the kidney injury which has been proposed. Mm -hmm. One of them is direct infection. Okay. We think this is mechanistically plausible because... The kidney is, uh, the proximal tubules are rich in ACE2 receptors. Okay. And um, we wanted to see if direct infection of the kidney was occurring. Okay. Uh, doesn't exclude other mechanisms. We just wanted to see it. So I asked my colleagues that are on the autopsy service. I have fond memories of doing autopsies in residency. <laughs> I don't do them anymore now. And I asked my colleagues uh, to save kidney tissue and glutaraldehyde for electron microscopy. Okay. And in the second patient that we took a look at under the electron microscope, we identified that there was a single focus in which the tubular epithelial cells contained abundant viral forms. Oh, interesting. Okay. So this wasn't something that you just saw under light microscopy. This is something that required electron microscopy to find. No, and I think that's actually an interesting point there, which is, most viral um, infections in the kidney or in other organs, they have changes, um, we call them viral cytopathologic effect. They, okay. the, there's marked nuclear changes, mm -hmm. changes in nuclear shape, changes in nuclear size, changes in the nuclear chromatin content, and maybe possibility of nuclear inclusions. 
we don't really see that in, with COVID. What I have seen are some cytoplasmic vacuolization, which possibly correlates to those areas where we see infections. And that goes along with what we know about how the SARS-CoV-2 virus replicates in cells, which is mostly in the cytoplasmic space instead of being in the nuclear space. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Just for everyone who's listening, we're also visual as pathologists. What does SARS-CoV-2 look like on electron microscopy? What are you seeing? Well, we kind of had an open mind when we started looking <laughs> at the biopsies. We weren't sure what we'd see either. Um, but it looks a lot like what most of you guys are, are seeing out there and, you know, in the newspaper reports and in maybe on the CDC website. So there are these circular, circular or oval forms, which are between in our case, 60 to 90 nanometers in uh -huh. diameter. Uh, we had a mean diameter of about 76, and that, that fits with what's been published in reports. Okay. Um, they have kind of a more lucent area in the center, um, and they also have the small spikes that you see on the outside. Oh, just like of those little cartoon drawings we're seeing. Exactly. All right, all right. Um, so you just mentioned there have been other published reports. So you're not the only person who's identified these viral particles by electron microscopy then? No, the most comprehensive uh, case series so far, again, ours is just a single report. There was a series um, that uh, came out of Wuhan by Huasu and Yang Ming. Uh, they looked at 26 autopsies of in the, you know, in the kidneys in, in these patients. Mm -hmm. um, and they examined nine cases by electron microscopy and they saw the viral forms in seven out of those nine cases. Okay. So we're able to confirm that finding basically in, in, in a patient uh, autopsy that was done in America. I know there's been a little bit of, of back and forth over if what we're seeing by EM or by the immunohistochemistry that some people are using to highlight, you know, SARS-related uh, changes in other organs, um, if this is really diagnostic of direct viral infection, because there have been efforts to identify the SARS-CoV-2 RNA by in-situ hybridization or nucleic acid amplification, and that's been unsuccessful. Can, so can you speak a little bit to this problem of where you're seeing it on EM, but then we're not finding it by these other methods of investigation? Sure, I think all of, the methods of identifying the virus have some pitfalls associated with them. So, you know, take what um, most of us are familiar with, which is immunohistochemistry. What I've been looking at has been autopsy cases. Mm -hmm. Autopsy cases have a lot of necrosis. You get nonspecific binding of antibodies in, in areas of necrosis. So there's can be, you know, kind of false positives there. In addition, uh, the kidney is a filter. And if you have viral antigens that are circulating, they can be filtered into the um, tubules. So you can get nonspecific um, you know, detection either in the yeah. tubular casts uh, within tubular reabsorption droplets or in the glomeruli themselves. Mm -hmm. In situ hybridization, well, you know, these are autopsy specimens. You have significant warm ischemic time. Um, so there could be some RNA degradation that's, you know, in present in those cases. So okay. you could have false negatives there from the insight to hybridization. Um, and then electron microscopy, some folks have, you know, said that there could be some challenges in the diagnosis. There are other potential um, ultrastructural features such as clathrin-coated pits mm -hmm. uh, or um, clathrin-coated endosomes that could be approximately the right same size and shape and that could um, give you uh, 
potentially a false positive by EM. Well, I think there's a couple other features in this particular case. The, um, the virus was forming arrays uh -huh. within the cytoplasm. And, uh -huh. you know, that's not a feature that you usually associate with, um, with endosomes, okay. um, but is typically seen in most, in a lot of cases, when you have some sort of viral replication going on. Um, and the endosomes typically have a more loosened center than are, than is present in the virus. Uh, okay. Virus particles that we saw were more electron intermediate. Okay. We've been talking about electron microscopy, but um, we spoke with Dr. Kung earlier, and she was talking more about the light microscopy findings. And specifically, we talked about collapsing glomerulopathy. Did you see anything in this patient by light microscopy that was unusual or made you think of a virus? Or was this just a relatively normal kidney that happened to have some viral particles by EM? Well, I find the, those case reports to be quite interesting. Um, and then the caveat, though, is the, those were lesions that were seen on biopsies and in autopsy slides, there's autolysis. Sure. But I haven't seen those kinds of, you know, really fulminant extraglomerular cellular proliferations um, in these cases. Because of the autolysis, we could be missing out on a subtle finding. Of course, of course, autopsy autopsy slides are different <laughs> than our than our usual surgical pathology slides, um, as any med students who go on into pathology will soon learn. Is there anything else related to kidney injury and COVID nineteen, or just your love of renal pathology in general that you would like to share with our listeners today? Well, you know, I, I think. You have to keep an open mind whenever you're um, looking at slides, whenever you're looking at a new disease or a new situation, and to follow your curiosity and, uh, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions because, you know, sometimes simple questions like, can we see this? You know, is this here? Um, can lead down interesting paths. Sure. And I'm assuming you're continuing to collect tissue from other autopsies as we speak? We do have, we have so far um, a series of about six to seven cases, which we've looked at. And so far about uh, total now of three to four cases do have um, similar viral uh, forms that are present. Okay. So it looks like, you know, our findings can support the, um, the Wuhan group in terms of approximate frequencies in the autopsy setting. Excellent. And before I let you go, for our medical students, uh, could you just share a little bit about why you, you chose pathology as a career or renal pathology specifically? <laughs> well, um, I was doing my surgery clerkship <laughs> and um, asked one of the residents on service how she decided to go into surgery. And she said that she woke up one morning and realized that she loved going into the hospital at you know three to four a.m. to round on her patients, uh -huh. and I realized very quickly that number one, um, that surgery was therefore not my residency. <laughs> yeah. And then when I rotated on the pathology surface, I realized I was excited every morning to go into the hospital to look at slides. Um, you know, I always wanted to gross additional cases, additional specimens, more than they were willing to let me. <laughs> wanted. I, I was one of the, I stayed later than the, some of the residents um, looking at cases in the afternoons. And, yeah. you know, I just, I realized I was excited every day to go in and learn more about pathology. And 
really, I think the decision was not one that I consciously made. It was kind of one that just both pathology and I came to kind of an agreement that this was the right thing for me. (laughs) I've heard that from a lot of people that you rotate on and you find that you not only enjoy the work, but you enjoy the people that you're working with in pathology. And I think that's important. I think we all find the specialty um, where we fit. Dr. Farkash, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today and uh, best of luck to you. Stay safe in the pandemic. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Good luck to everyone out there. A special thanks to Drs. Kung and Farkash for speaking with us today about renal injury and COVID-19, and to you, the listeners of PathPod News Edition. We'll be back next week with a new interview on a timely pathology topic. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.